it is a mystery to me how God just would come and rescue us. We don't deserve it. We sure needed it, but God did, did it anyway. I, I'm just amazed. One of the things else I'm amazed with, I want to give you an update on my eye surgery. I went and had a, a, a checkup this week. I have 2015 vision in one eye and 2020 in the other. So uh, Papa Scott can see y'all now. Y'all are prettier than I thought you were. Somebody says, you need to go back and get those checked again, all right? You know, the older we get, the more risk adverse we become. Did you know that? That when you get old, I don't know if we lose our passion or lose our get up and go. Like my dad said, his get up and go got up and went. I don't, I don't know if that's supposed to be funny. And I don't know if that happens. Uh, I don't know. Actually, I do know this, that as we age, our brains change. Do you know that? Actually, our brains shrink as we get older. Isn't that great news? And they talked about eating something from a jellyfish. It'll help your brain. I doubt that. Um, but anyway, that's just me kind of being wobbly on that. Thought I would sting you with that little pun. But what is the deal? Well, I do know this from adolescent, adolescent psychology. We do know this, that there's a thing. Well, our brains, they really don't fully develop until usually for girls around 18 or 19, for guys around 21, 22 years old, that our brains do not fully develop. And that, that place where we're discerning about risk does not fully develop. That's why young men make great soldiers or great football players because they don't see any, any risk. We were watching uh, the high school football playoffs this week and our Wimberley guys did great, did great. So we could just celebrate them and, and as they played at the highest level. And as watching that and watching those young men just destroy themselves, realizing that when they're in their later years, they'll be like me where stairs are a challenge because of all the things we've done to ourselves. But we get risk adverse. Now, adolescent psychologists say this. There's a thing called the personal fable, that in that period of time where our brains have not yet kind of fully developed, we believe nothing bad will ever happen to us. And so we are great risk takers because we have that personal fable. Now, bad things may happen to everybody else all around us, but not to us. And then things happen and, and that fable is dispersed because there's tragedy that come along. Uh, someone dies or someone's wounded or something happens to you, you're injured, but that personal fable is there. And, and so, but why is it that we are so risk adverse? Now, let me give you an example from a church life, a church perspective, as I work with churches. New churches, man, they're all about risk. Let's go. We're going to meet in the school. We're going to set up. We're going to take down. We have no money. We got a few people. We got a big vision. We believe God wants us to use us in the city. So we're going to do whatever it takes. We're going to leverage whatever we need to do. And we're going to go take this city for King Jesus. We're going to set up, take down. We're going to scrape by. We're going to take great risk. How do I know that? Because I did that twice, twice. And, and now I'm an old man. I don't want to do that no more because it's hard. But churches, like people, the older they get, the more risk-adverse they become. They don't want to take risks because they think we've got too much to lose. Now, we're 135 years old at First Baptist Church, so we do not like risk, right? Wrong, because <laughs> there's a new spirit here. God's doing something here. Now, I think about this. And I think about who are the odd ones, the ones, and I, I want to move away from church. I want to think about people. Who are the odd ones that we know 
took great risks. Now, throughout Scripture, there's really strange people that took great risks. Like Abraham was 99 when he became a daddy. 99. Now, if you don't think being a daddy's a risk, just just wait till your kids get older. It's a risk for sure. Uh, Moses. Moses was 80 years old when God asked him to bring the Hebrew children out of Egypt. Now, I'm not quite 80, but getting across the H-E-B parking lot seems like a challenge to me, much less taking people out of the land of Egypt. This is some of my best funny stuff, y'all. You're going to have to like, help me here, okay? And, and, and so then there's, um, well, there's, there's others, the prophets, uh, there's composers, uh, people that were late in life. I remember uh, having Aaron Copeland, the composer, directing an opera, and he was in his 80s, and he was still writing and composing and leading, because I think this, our best leadership comes later in life if we will not be afraid to take risk. Ronald Reagan was 70 when he became president. Can you believe an actor who, who played counter with a monkey became president? Donald Trump was 72 when he, y'all thought I was going to go someplace. I didn't, was 72 when he became president. Some of our candidates running now, uh, if, if they're elected, they will be 9 million years old when they're elected as president. Anyway, we're not going to be political, so just relax. But how can I be that person that is not risk adverse, but God aware? How can I become that? So I'll ask you a question. What would you do for God if you knew it was him who asked? Now, before you lie and say, I'd do anything, I know that's not true, and you do too, because there's things he's asked you to do that you're clearly disobeying. You just don't want to do them. You're just not. It's not. Of course, we think obeying God is somehow tied to the love of God, but it's not. But I will say this. The will of God is often revealed in the hindsight of obeying God. But what would you do for God if you knew him? Who ask? Well, today I'm going to talk about a guy in Scripture that I've been a pastor 38 years. This is the first sermon I've ever heard on this guy named Joseph. Normally, Christmas time, we focus on the angels and the wise men, and we talk about Mary and Joseph. But today, I, w- I want to focus on Joseph and look at a guy that was willing to take a great risk because he was greatly God-aware. And in that, I want us to look at his decisions, and I want to look at the lessons we've learned from him, how he can shape our lives. And then we're going to celebrate communion together. And I want to say this about communion. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of your membership here, you're welcome to have communion with us. You don't even have to be a Baptist, y'all. You're welcome to have communion. We have an open table, and we welcome you to participate if you've trusted Christ. Now, if you haven't, it's not for you. But guess what? We will give you an opportunity for it to be just for you. So let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're going to say to us as we talk about this guy from your word, this man of history, Joseph, who was your King Jesus, your stepfather, who, uh, who chose to believe you and chose to take a great risk and his life took on an incredible course that has defined history. And I pray, Father, as I speak today, that it'll not be my thoughts or my words or my opinions, but your truth that leads us to understand who you are and how you work. And I'm thankful for who you are. So speak to us, Father. We listen now, and we pray this in your strong name. Amen. 
Now go ahead and take out your notes. You're going to want to jot some things down. Uh, this morning, I wrote this sermon about two weeks ago. And this morning, I was kind of looking back over it. And then I got curious about the first part of Matthew. And then we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1, 18, verse 18 through the end of the chapter. But the first part of the chapter talks about the lineage or the genealogy of Jesus. And you've got all these people. And Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy all, back, all the way back to Abraham. Now, if you look at Luke's genealogy, he traces it all the way back to Adam. And you see some differences in names. What's up with that? What didn't, shouldn't Matthew and Luke kind of collaborate and talk together? Now, here's the difference. Matthew was writing particular to the Jewish people. And he wanted to show the Jewish people that Jesus was a descendant of King David and a fulfillment of the covenant promise that a, a ruler from David's house would sit on the throne of, of Israel, actually of the world forever and ever and ever, and that was King Jesus. So he was showing how that prophecy was foretold. In fact, Matthew spent a lot of time throughout this whole gospel showing you how prophecy was foretold and, and fulfilled through, through Jesus. Luke, on the other hand, was writing to Greeks, and he was writing to prove that Mary, and he followed Mary's lineage down through the life to show that he was also a king, a priestly king. So through the king and through the priest, Jesus was a kingly priest. And we could go on in more detail about that. But it's amazing how you see somehow their, their lineage crosses uh, because they probably, Mary and Joseph, probably were related, perhaps even cousins. Now, some of you automatically think Jesus was from East Texas or Arkansas. He wasn't. Northwest Florida would be more like it. That's where I grew up. Anyway. But, but you could look at the lineage. And I just say all that to say that it's fascinating how God is into the details, how God weaves the details of the courses of life. God does not look at history in the present. He looks at history in the past, the present, and the future. God sits in a place where he sits seas from horizon to horizon. And he's working now for your next. And he's working in your now from the past to bring you now to your now to bring you to your next. And that's how God works. But let's look at this passage beginning in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. And I want to read it for you. It'll be on the screen. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together. Now, what, they, what this means, they came together. This means before their marriage was consummated. Now, you said, well, what does that mean? Dan will be able to expand consummation to you. Just see Dan afterwards. But before they were functioning or behaving as husband and wife, uh, there's a lot of folks who do that before they're actually married, but this is he, he, she was found to be by child with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm sure that was an interesting conversation Mary had with Joseph that day. Uh, Joseph, I got something we need to talk about, don't you know? Because, you know, Mary's from New Jersey. And she said, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm pregnant. We're, we're going to have a baby and Joseph said, what? Yeah, the Holy Spirit came. How many of you guys would buy that? That's a tough one to buy. And so, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man, or one translation says, translation says a righteous man, which should hold on to that, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. In other words, he was going to put her away. Some theologians believe he was going to put her in the care of her aunt Elizabeth, Elizabeth, who was also pregnant with John the Baptist. So he, she would be quietly give birth there and they could return to Nazareth at some point and follow through. He was going to have her go there 
and, and not be put to shame because the shamefulness of, uh, of an unwanted pregnancy or unplanned pre- or pregnancy outside of the cover of marriage would, could be punishable by death. And so Joseph didn't want that for Mary because he, he loved her. But as he considered these things, okay, and we put her shame to quietly divorce her. But as he considered these things, and I'm sure this didn't leave his mind. Have y'all ever had a pressing decision you had to make and you considered it all the time? It was always before you, no matter what you did, that you were considering this, you were considering this, you were considering this. And this is where Joseph was. High levels of stress, he was considering this. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, I find this to be fascinating that the word dream is used here. We would probably call this a vision. But I need to say this to you. I've done a lot of work in the Middle East and Central Asia and in the Far East. And one thing I've discovered that every pastor I talked to in Central Asia came to Christ through a dream. They had a vision of Jesus in a dream. Now, this is more than, uh, you know, we have silly dreams. Do y'all have silly dreams? You, know, you dream stuff and you can't figure it out. You wake up in the morning like last night I dreamt I ate a five pound marshmallow and I woke up, my pillow was gone. I mean, you know, those kind of, <laughs> another terrible joke. Um, don't roast me about that one. Anyway, but this was a vivid vision. And the pastors in Central Asia would say in a dream, they had a vivid vision of Jesus. And that Joseph had the same experience. And God uses visions and dreams to speak to us. In our subconscious state, he speaks to us. And, and this was on, on Joseph's mind. He, he was thinking, he was praying. He was saying, God, what am I going to do? And he said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he'll save the people from their sins. Wow. Wow. That God stepped into Joseph at the right time and said, hey, this is me. Now, here's the deal. Joseph had to believe that. Now, we read this in black and white, and we think, this is kind of easy. But let me share with you the reality of this. Joseph made some decisions that shaped his destiny. Joseph made his decisions which shaped his destiny. When Joseph woke from sleep... He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not. Knew her not. Go ahead and show the the rest of that that slide. But knew her not. But he knew her not until they had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let me go back and read the rest of this. I'm sorry, I was reading the screen, and it got behind. And for he will save the people from the sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. There he is, uh, Matthew fulfilling the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call him his name Emmanuel, which God's with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she given birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. They called his name Jesus. So here's some decisions Joseph made that determined his destiny. Do you know that every decision you make determines your destiny? Your decisions of today become the places of your abiding tomorrow. Your decisions determine your destiny. Now, here's some things that we've learned from Joseph's decision. First of all, Joseph decided, decided to be a righteous man. How did he get to be righteous? I mean, this is before Jesus 
came to make us righteous. You know, we're not righteous until we give our lives to Christ and he gives us his righteousness. How did Joseph become a righteous man? This is before Jesus had come where Jesus died to make us right with God. How did that come? Jesus, Joseph became righteous with God because he believed God. Listen to me. The pathway to righteousness has always been by faith. It's never been by works. It's never been by what you do or what you attend. The other night, Tara and I were on the way back from someplace. We were out and about. I think we're on our way back from San Antonio, maybe. And we started listening to an old-fashioned Baptist preacher in a revival. And he was preaching on the radio. And this is what he said. You know, you love God when you come to church on Sunday mornings. And you love, Je- or love, the- you love Jesus when you come to church on Sunday nights. And you love the Holy Spirit when you come to church on Wednesday nights. Uh, what? That your love of Christ is based on your attendance at a church gathering? I don't think so. You know, it's not what you show up to that matters. It's what shows up in you that matters. And righteousness is not a tie to your attendance. You could go to a barn every day and never become a horse. And you could come to every time we open the doors, you could come here. But if you never decide to believe God by faith, you will never be righteous. Ever. You can eat all the communion wafers we have and drink all the juice out of these little cups. Will equal about eight ounces of juice. You do all that you want to, but if you never trust Christ, you're not righteous. Joseph believed God. Paul said this in Romans 8 the just have always lived by faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him righteousness. Joseph believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. All the people who lived and died before Jesus came and died on the cross, if they believed God, they were entered into heaven. Wait a second, Scott. That's kind of hard because there's a whole lot of people didn't hear about God. But I'll tell you, there were a whole lot of people who did hear about God. Let me tell you what God did. God put his people, Israel, in the very center of society. If you lived in Persia and you wanted to go to Egypt, you had to go through Israel. If you lived in Turkey and you wanted to go to Egypt, you had to go through Israel. Alexander the Great had to go through Israel to conquer the whole world. God put his name and his people in the center of society. Paul even said this, all creation declares the glory of God so no one is without excuse. Even the ancient Greeks knew there was something greater than their perverted God system where they erected a monument to the unknown God. You see, God was known to them. And Jesus came to show us God and to make God more accessible to us. And it's always been by faith. Always. So you look at your heart and your life. If you've not faithed God, then you are not righteous to God. That's why we say have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is an intellectual decision followed by an emotional commitment. The will of a man given to King Jesus makes him right with God. Makes him right with God. Joseph was a righteous man. He made a decision and it changed him. Joseph decided to honor Mary. He could have divorced her. He could have made a public spectacle of her. He could have announced, like, what have you done? 
You embarrass me, you embarrass our family. Don't bring me this nonsense about impregnation by the Holy Spirit. Don't say these things to me. We know these are not true. This is impossible. But Joseph knew that with God, all things were possible, and he decided to honor Mary. Guys, I want to tell you something. The greatest thing you can do in your life, other than trusting Jesus, is to honor your wife. To honor your wife. To love, to respect, to cherish her, to honor her, to devote yourselves to her. That is why in February, February 14th and 15th, we're doing a rekindle marriage retreat because we want to honor, guys, our wives. You don't ask your wife, honey, you won't go to that little retreat that preacher's going to do? You say, baby, 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 hunka hunka burning love is taking you to a high-end hotel where I'm going to lavish my love on you. Then after she gets sick to her stomach, you make reservations, Okay. But he decided to honor her. And I love this about Joseph. In fact, when I teach marriage courses, I teach the great romances of the Bible. Uh, One of the great romances is Adam and Eve. Then there's Ruth and Boaz. There's Solomon, the Shulamite. And then there's Mary and Joseph. You talk about an example of great honor. This is great honor. Joseph chose to believe Mary and he chose to believe God. Joseph decided that God's assignment was more important than his reputation. Joseph, being a righteous man, being a descendant of King David, set in a lineage where everyone in Nazareth knew he was from Bethlehem, he was from the royal family, he was royalty. Everyone knew that. And then here God comes along and says, your fiance is pregnant with the Holy Spirit, so you're going to take your reputation and you're going to throw it away. Because from now on, Joseph, you'll be labeled as the illegitimate father of Jesus. The stepfather of Jesus. And the gossip that went around Nazareth, yeah, y'all don't believe Mary, do you? That's ridiculous. And Joseph's an idiot. He's an idiot. She probably had a liaison with a Roman soldier, which was spread, by the way, about Mary. It was impregnated by him. And this just, it's a big scandal. It's a big cover up. But Joseph said, you know what? My family tree, the limb I'm sitting on, I'm sawing it off for King Jesus. I'm sawing it off to be used by God. When I decided to become a Christian, I gave up my rights to location, to vocation, privileges. I surrendered my rights. I didn't know that. I was seven when I did that. But one thing I do know, when I said yes to God that I would be a pastor, I lost some very good friends. I still love them. But my decision had caused them to not want to be around me. They became afraid of me. But for King Jesus, I was willing to risk my reputation to follow him. You know, I look at Joseph's life and I think about, mine was nothing. This was huge. This was huge. He decided public shame was worth a divine opportunity. Joseph was a tecton, a builder. The dismissive term for Jesus was that he was a carpenter. Joseph was a carpenter, but really they were builders. Joseph's and sons, you know, building from the foundations of the earth. <laughs> that was their, probably their slogan. Herodian builder, built large stone and small stones, followed the the pattern of architecture by King Herod, the large stone, the small stones that they built. And and, and you know what Joseph did? He had Jesus right there with him. 
He was in partnership with Jesus. We don't know what happened to Joseph. By the time Jesus was 12, we know Joseph was still around because Joseph has a conversation. He had married with Jesus that he was supposed to be with everybody on their way back to Nazareth that he stayed in the temple and was astounding them with his teaching. And Joseph knew Jesus was different. He knew he was brilliant. He didn't realize he was God. I think he got it, figured it out. You know, angels and shepherds and wise men and stars and evidence was like overwhelming and he chose to believe in Jesus. You know, Joseph had to trust Jesus just like you do. Mary had to trust Jesus just like you do. And he said, you know what? Public shame and ridicule is worth a divine opportunity. And he chose to lay that all aside to follow this one who laid everything aside for him. John's going to come. He's coming quickly like a young deer and he's going to sing a great song for us. It's called Joseph's Lullaby. I want you to lean in and listen to these powerful words as John comes and sings.
You know, John is the uh, band director at Wimberley High, and uh, proud of you, John. Thank you for singing that for us today. Here's some lessons we've learned from Joseph, some lessons that I jot down that, that as I wrote this talk, obeying God is more important than anything else in life. Obeying God is more important than anything else in life. You know, your life is defined by your obedience to Christ. We can make decisions that determine our destinies, but if we don't follow those decisions up with obedience, then all we've done is made a decision to nowhere. That I said, I'm going to trust this one who I trusted my life to, and I'm going to display my trust by obeying him. There's an old song we used to sing, trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. And Joseph, despite the circumstances, despite all of the reputation, despite everything, he said, I'm going to obey God. And he did, and he experienced God. Another lesson, Joseph chose to live with a stigma. It was acceptable. A stigma means a mark, a blot, a stain. It has its root in the word stigmata. And stigmata, literally in the Catholic tradition, it means this, to bear the wounds of crucifixion. And there's been people documented throughout history, mostly priests or nuns, who carried the stigmata that they would appear mysteriously wounds of crucifixion, physically in their body. Nail pierced, sores in their hands and their feet, in their side. They carried the stigmata. Y'all, when we come to Christ, we take up our cross daily and follow him. We live with the stigmata, the wounds of crucifixion. I have been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. Jesus Christ now lives in me, and the life I now live is by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. Paul wrote that in Colossians chapter 2, Galatians 2.20, the stigmata. He says, it's okay to live with that stigmata. That if I live with the identification of Jesus, then that's the way to live. I will bear the wounds of following this one who gave everything for me. I find that to be unbelievable. Most of us, we want Jesus on our terms. We want to make God in our own image. And we take our faith in Christ and we put it high on a back shelf to leave it there unopened and unused and break in case of emergency. With the doctor's diagnosis or a spouse's announcement or a child's rebellion, we bring it down and we open it and we use it. When Christ says, no, I want you to lavish living in my stigmata, my stigma. And Jesus bore the shame. Joseph bore the shame for Jesus' sake. No matter what they said in Nazareth, that's my boy. No matter how Jesus was treated, 
That's my boy. I'm going to bear the shame. I'm going to bear the shame for Jesus' sake. I'm going to bear the shame of his mother, Mary. I'm going to bear this shame because I'm going to wear it for King Jesus. Joseph was willing to take a great risk even though he would never experience the joy of the resurrection. He took this great risk and died before Christ rose again and ushered into the church. He said, that's okay. Because Joseph learned that life was not about him. It wasn't. It wasn't. Last night, Tara and I were binge watching Texas high school football championships. And we watched game after game, watching those young men play. And there was a coach on there, had this big cowboy hat. He won 11 state championships as a high school coach. Big deal. 10, 15 years from now, or 10 or 15 years after he's dead, nobody's going to know who he was. He'll just be a dusty remembrance in a hall of fame someplace, a tarnishing bronze bust of a man. But all King Jesus will never forget. And Joseph's name is written not in the pages of high school football, but it's written in the book of God's word because he said, it's not about me. The reputation, the stigmata, Whatever it takes to honor that girl, I'm going to bear it because my life is not my own. I laid it down for you, King Jesus. So I ask you the question, what about you? What about you? Can you learn the lessons of Joseph? Obeying is more important than anything. A stigma is acceptable. I'll bear the shame for Jesus' sake. I'm going to take a great risk, even though I might not see the reward. I thought about that Tuesday when I paid off the debt. I walked into the bank and I've only been here. It'll be three years we've been together in March and I haven't been here that long. And I handed that check and, and I celebrated, but you know, I stood on the shoulders of pastor Mark and pastor Mike as they faithfully served this church during that time. Pastor Mark relocated you here. Pastor Mike helped lead this church in a period of time he was here. And then other pastors, 19 pastors before me, I stood on their shoulders as we paid off that debt. The faithfulness of you guys giving. It's not about me. Those guys were faithful even though they didn't see the reward. And probably some other pastor is going to get to pay off this next debt. That's my plan anyway. No, I'm kidding. My plan is to see it all done, Right? but I work for King Jesus. I don't work for y'all just saying, but am I willing to do whatever it takes, even though I will not see the reward? Am I willing to do that? Am I willing to remove my narcissism, my arrogance, my entitlement, my elitism and lay it at the feet of Jesus? What would I do for Jesus? If I knew it was him who asked, what would I do? What would you do? Are you risk adverse? Are you God aware? 